We've been working through these uh, conversations, and uh, one of the fascinating things in Israel, if you will, is a rabbi, is that there really is little evidence, if any, that if rabbis ever had conversations with people, uh, they taught, they studied, uh, but there isn't much evidence that they ever gave much attention or time to people, uh, regular people like uh, you and me, uh, to have a conversation with. It's just fascinating when you study the, the, the history of Israel and realize that this is a fairly uncommon practice uh, for Jesus uh, to do as a rabbi, as a traveling teacher. And, of course, I, I, you know, I wrote my notes one time or the other day. You know, if you could have a conversation with one person, no matter who they are, who would it be? That's always kind of an interesting thing. When you ask a person that, it, it tells something about them. Mine always has been John Wesley. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to have a conversation with him. I've got a couple of questions I'd like to ask him, and I'm sure he would have some for me. Uh, but we learn things uh, when we have conversations with other people. I, I thought about this. I read this the other day about this fella. He was a Czechoslovakian uh, a person, a fella, that uh, uh, reminded me uh, when we were in college, our cook was from Czechoslovakia. And she was a wonderful lady, but every morning when we came to the cafeteria, she would say, would you like some glitz? And uh, I said, what? <laughs> Grits <clears throat> for glitz. And come on, y'all get that in a minute. Come on. Were y'all out partying last night with your mom or something? <clears throat> anyway, she had a fairly heavy accent, and, and, uh, but, when you were, but I heard this story about a, a Czechoslovakian guy that went to the eye doctor because he was having some problems uh, seeing, and in this conversation with the doctor, he learned a lot. Uh, the, the doc had said, we need to check your eyes, and so you know the old program of putting those things over your eyes and, and uh, better, worse, whatever. But when he'd actually done the chart, uh, the doctor held this chart up and just said, now, please read these letters, C-Z-W-K-I-Z. And the Czech guy said, read this lines. I know this guy. <clears throat> I know, it's bad. <clears throat> it's, like, it's like Mike Krzyzewski. I keep saying the guy needs to buy a vowel, you know? I have no idea how you get Krzyzewski at a KZW or however that KZR, whatever it is. But you learn things about people whenever you have conversations, and, and uh, they're meaningful. I, I was just the, uh, maybe three or five years ago, Becky and I were driving down the road, and we were talking about something, and I, I tried to remember what it was. I can't, but I remember her response to me. She goes, I didn't know that about you. We'd been married 30 years. And, uh, you know, it's kind of amazing what you learn about people uh, as you have conversations, you talk with them. In John chapter 3, we're going to finish this out today, where this uh, fascinating and fairly uh, known uh, conversation that Jesus had with this religious leader named Nicodemus. And we find it in John chapter 3, and last week we ended there at verse 15. I want to just kind of pick that up, and again, uh, we're looking at uh, what might be the most famous uh, passage of Scripture in all the Bible. So if you'll follow along with me there, you can read, with me, uh, read along with me as I read in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe in Him has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that, has, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth. Isn't that interesting? Practices. The word will come back to that. It's not believe the truth. Practices the truth. At least in the New American Standard. The truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So I want to finish this conversation. I told you last week there just wasn't any way that I could finish it with what we had done. So I want to look at this today under a couple of ideas about this in this conversation. Again, like... When I had a conversation with Becky, she learns things about me. I learned things about her. Uh, I was thinking when I was uh, writing this introduction, uh, whenever I perform weddings, you know, the word is officiate. That's kind of a crude way to say that, right? You know, I'm going to officiate a wedding. No, no, got a personal foul here. Oh, no. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> but, but when I officiate weddings, it it's, it's always strikes me is how much these young people think they know each other, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Isn't that amazing? How, how much, and I just got an amen from Shay up here. She just, no, <clears throat> how much they think they know about that person. But it's in the living, isn't it? And in the experiences of life that you really get to know someone else. It's in conversations, it's in times together that you really get to. So in this conversation, I want to look at a couple things. Number one, I'd like to look at this first one here is in this conversation, we get an understanding of God's nature get an understanding of God's nature. Now, <clears throat> I want to spend a little time here thinking about this. The nature of, of, of God. Uh, you know, I, uh, Mother's Day is, is, you know, a great day for us to celebrate, but I've always said to Becky, we've talked about it, that the nature of Mother's Day, in my mind at least, is to give honor <clears throat> and appreciation to our mothers. Uh, on this day, it's a special day. You know, Hallmark, Hallmark designed this day, and, uh, or somebody. <clears throat> Uh, they designed this day, but what, what for me is, is it's just a day for me to say to my mom how much I love her and appreciate her, but it's not the only day I do that, hopefully, is it? The, the nature of Mother's Day can't be just a one-time big deal, isn't this great, mom, you're wonderful, and the rest of the year treat her like she doesn't exist. The nature of Mother's Day is to be a day we sort of culminate or, or celebrate uh, our love for our parents. The nature of things, it, it, it's incredibly important for us to understand the nature of things, and with that, the nature of God. Notice what it says right here in 16. For God so loved the world. Now, in the, in the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, I want to suggest a couple of ideas here that are, for me, are, are just foundational for my understanding of living the Christian life or following Jesus. When it says that God so loved the world. You know, uh, my tradition that we come out of in the, in the church of God uh, comes from a, a Wesleyan tradition. And our tradition would suggest and say uh, that we believe, as Jacob Arminius, we're called Wesleyan Arminians, <clears throat> said this. Jacob Arminius said, I love the way he said it this way, is the primitive nature of God is love. Now, I, wanna, I know we've heard this, <clears throat> we've heard that, but I want to I I ask you to think with me for a bit. The primitive nature of God is love. Now, when you read lots of theologians about God, they talk about God as incomprehensible, as God is spirit, and all these kind of things. And there, there are all kinds of features that are accurate when we talk about God like that. But when Arminius is talking about God or writing about God, he's saying, if you boil, and that's a, maybe a crazy way to say this, but if you boil down the nature of God, what do you come to? Love. 
I, I, think, think about it this way. It, it, I was telling Becky in my notes, it, it sort of came off the page with me. It, it, the nature of Old Testament religion, the nature of it, it's this. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord Adonai Eloheinu, our God, is one, Echad. Every, every good Jewish person every morning prayed that prayer. Shema Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Every day. When we went to Israel, I think I mentioned that, that when, we, uh, when the sun started coming up as the plane was going east, the rabbis in the plane got up and began to pray. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Echad. Adonai Echad. Praying over and over again. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then what? You shall love... <coughs> The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. That's the center of the understanding of the nature of God in Judaism. That, that, that is, if you will, that's the mountaintop of understanding the nature of God and what it means to be a Jew. That God is one. And because of that, you should do what? You should love Him with all your soul and all your heart and all your strength. Think of how that changes in the New Testament a bit. I mean, God is still one. But I think that the center of gravity shifts. The center of gravity in the New Testament isn't that God is one and you should love Him. What is it? God loves you. See how the center of gravity shifts? That, that in the Old Testament, it's God is one and you should love Him. In the New Testament, it's my judgment that it shifts to now God loves. That's the center of Christianity. Now, we, you know, we, 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 need, we may need to talk about this from this standpoint. Love has kind of gotten polluted. The word doesn't mean as much and more in, in English as it does in uh, the New Testament or the Old Testament. But I want to <clears throat> suggest to you that for some reason in my life <clears throat> and in people I meet, God as love doesn't seem to be the center of many people's understanding. Now, I'm talking about a vigorous kind of love. I'm not talking about what I call sloppy agape, you know. Just, you know, we're God, okay, do whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But I am saying that this notion of God as love is so critical and foundational to our understanding. Let's say it this way. <clears throat> Becky and I were talking to her. She gives me some great ideas. <clears throat> if God's <clears throat> primitive nature is love, <clears throat> what my concern is <clears throat> with my students and others is this. That when you disassociate... Now listen to me now, <clears throat> carefully. When you disassociate God's sovereignty from His love, you just got a bully. Think about it. Uh, there are... <clears throat> There are ideas that the foundational understanding of God, He's sovereign. I don't believe that. I believe God is sovereign, but I see it another way. That, that the foundational understanding of God is... And when you disassociate sovereignty from love, you just have a bully. Somebody just says, I can get my way because I'm sovereign. Now, I've talked to people and I've been around people and been around situations where if you talk about God... All these other attributes start getting discussed as if they were equal. God is this and this and this. I want to suggest to you again 
that when Nicodemus talks to Jesus, Jesus lets him know that the foundational nature of God is love. So if you disassociate sovereignty, you get love. If you disassociate God's immutability, you know, he doesn't change, he's not given to change, you just have a mechanical being. If you disassociate God's purity from love, you have a disengaged God that can't relate to anybody. If you disassociate any of the attributes that we normally think about God, I want to suggest you get something different than what the Bible talks about when it talks about God. Does this make sense to you? That, 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 that we have looked at these other features instead of through the lens of God's primitive nature as love and just seen them as they stand alone. You know, the word sovereign, really... This idea of sovereignty means you're all-powerful, right? You can do anything, I guess, you want to or anything that your character allows. I'll, I'll just give you my opinion. Remember, thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across this community church, its elders, or leadership. I'll tell you where I believe God is sovereign. I believe God is sovereign in love. I think He's the only person or thing in the universe that has the capacity and the ability and the power and the strength to love everyone. That's why He's so much different than we are. God is sovereign in love. Any God, you know, the, 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 New, the New Testament and Christianity isn't breaking any new ground if it said God is powerful. Every God in the Greek pantheon is powerful. Uh, you're not saying anything new if God just can get His way because every God in the Greek or Roman pantheon gets their way. Why? They're more powerful than you are. They're stronger than you are. But in Christianity, it's my suggestion that what we've done is, is we've looked at these other things about God. He is sovereign. He is pure. He is immutable. He is omniscient. He is un un unfathomable. But you disassociate those from love and you've got a God that gets in conflict with Himself. You get, in you get a God who gets in conflict with himself, that he has to be this at this point and this at that point. I just want to ask you to consider that we confess and declare that the center of Christian theology and understanding is that God loves. God loves. I just want to ask you this week to think about this. <clears throat> when you think about God, <clears throat> when you consider Him, are those attributes of God, <clears throat> sovereignty, immutability, purity, holiness, all of those things, are they rooted in the notion that God's primitive nature is love? Any expression of sovereignty is an expression of love. Any expression of purity <clears throat> is an expression <clears throat> of His love. Any expression of God's immutability <clears throat> is an expression of His love. I don't know about you, <clears throat> I, I didn't hear this much. I saw all of these attributes, if you will, disassociated just when sovereign, we're talking about His power. Purity, we're talking about how, how clean He is as opposed to us. I get an email uh, every once in a while in the week uh, from Michael Patton. Maybe you all know him. He's a director at Credo House. It's a, a place for uh, theology nerds and uh, you know, to come and act cool and drink coffee like we know what we're doing. It is, it's, a, it's a place we talk about theology and study. Mike brings some people in from around the country and they do record. It's a really great thing. I've always been amused that Mike sends this uh, uh, email out every week and, and it, it says at the very beginning, 
the first line in the email. Jesus loves you. He really does. Don't forget. Here, here, Jesus loves you. He really does. Don't forget. You know, isn't that interesting that that statement there is, the idea is that we often forget that God really is love. Now, let, let's talk about that just wrong. What is, it, what is love? Love is that which seeks the best for that which is loved. Love is what seeks the best for that which is loved. It isn't sloppy. It isn't, it isn't just that something easy and, and funny. It's what seeks and desires the best for what it loves. When Becky and I were dating, she uh, came home from Kansas one time. I didn't go. When I was dating her, I didn't have to go, so I, I, I used that option. <laughs> and uh, we were talking, and she'd come home, and her parents had talked to her, and they weren't really crazy about me. I just still don't understand why. And uh, <clears throat> she came back, and, and she said <clears throat> to me, uh, Cliff, I think you need to date around. And I thought, okay, first of all, I, you know, I don't need you to tell me actually what to do. I'm kind of a big boy. <clears throat> and I knew she'd been home, <clears throat> and I'm thinking, I'm saying, uh, uh, what do you mean by that, dear? Or Becky, I probably said Becky. I said, uh, what do you mean? She goes, well, I, I just think you need to date around, and, <clears throat> and you probably need, and I said, well, I appreciate your concern for me. You know, I don't know exactly where this is coming from, uh, but I really, uh, and I, was, I, was just, I said, I, I, just, I need you to know how I'm wired if, you know, if you're really interested in me. I really don't need your instructions on this, okay? I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't need you to kind of hold my hand and walk me around. I'm a big boy. And I remember saying this, sir. I said, now, if you're saying to me, you want to date around, I understand that. I mean, I look at you, look at me, I, I understand that. <clears throat> if you want to date around, that's fine. But here's what I said, and, and when I said it, and when I got through it, I thought, I do love her. I, I do love her. I, I said, if you're saying that you think there's somebody else out there better than me, it's hard to believe. But, you know, <clears throat> no, I, I was being honest. I really was being honest. I, <clears throat> I said, if, if you think there's someone out there, Becky, that is better for you and will bring you a higher, I, I said, a higher quality of life, then I think you should date around. Because I want you, this is the first time I've ever said this, it's the first time out of my mouth. I love you so much that I want you to be sure that you experience the best that life can give you. When I said that, I mean, I wasn't just, you know, goofing around either. I wasn't trying to manipulate her. You know, I wasn't trying to, to say, but I really said, I really want you. To, you're the, she's the best person I've ever met in my life. A couple of y'all are close, but not, not really. Not too close. Dave's back in pretty good. <laughs> that, that, that I said that I, I know that I want you to have the best that you can have. And I really, man, I was stunned when I went back to my room. My roommate's talking about going, I just said something. I don't know if I believe or do I believe. You know, I mean, really, I mean, I, I thought, I, I want the best. And if I'm not it, I want you to have it. See, God's love isn't just sloppy and sentimental and and it, it, it really wants and seeks the best for us. And you know what the best is for us, don't you? Him. He is the best. He's the one. Now, let's, let's look here just for a moment about this. What if this week you really believe that God is love? 
What would need to change in your thinking and behavior about yourself in your life? What would you need to change in your thinking and behavior about yourself? I mean, this is a crazy idea, but we, we, we agree with our head, but to live it out to say, God really loves me. Because it's His nature. It's God's nature to love. He no more decides to love than He decides to let the, the sun keep burning. It's who He is. It's who He is. Do one thing this week that shows that you really believe that God loves you. I gave you a couple examples here. Don't panic when you fail. You know, sometimes when people fail or sin, they don't think God loves them anymore. They, they start panicking. Uh, you know, don't, don't panic. Or don't, don't be worried about life as, as we, we understand it at times. But this idea is live faithfully and confidently. Do you believe that? That God's primitive nature is love. If you understand His sovereignty, you better understand it as sovereign love. If you understand His immutability, it has to be immutability that's informed with love. If you understand His purity and holiness, it really has to be a purity or holiness that is rooted and grounded in a love that seeks the best for the one it loves. Now, for some of us, maybe this is old news. But I tell you what, the more I talk to people and the older I get, the love of God is something that not everybody seems to believe or to experience very often. They've got, they've got these other attributes of God goofed up by themselves instead of sovereignty that's loving, immutability that's loving, all of those kind of matters. So we understand that. Okay, second thing here we see. An understanding of God's relationship with the world. What did God love? The world. Yeah, the, the, the world here. See, what, what is God's relationship with the world? Uh, the world occurs in the Gospel of John 61 times, more than any other Gospel uh, that we have any recording of. The, the, the word there shows up 60, 61 times. Uh, the world, though, here generally refers to people, like those on the planet, you know, people, who are outside of, if you will, salvation, or those who are outside of the kingdom or the rule of God. In fact, the world is comprised in, in John, if you will, of people who are not only outside of the kingdom of God or the rule of God, but are antagonistic to it. That are antagonistic to it. You know, the, the, the idea is that, that, that God is loving people who would like nothing better to do than to undermine His kingdom. God is loving the world. This Greek word here, meaning in, in John at least, this group of people, this system, this situation, that would love nothing better than to undermine what He's trying to do. Do you think that's a pretty impressive thought, I think, that God loves those people? I think God would want to kind of uh, deal with them. <laughs> that God would want to do something to them. And I want to suggest this to us. <clears throat> just, just my, this is just my observation. If God's fundamental, primitive nature is love, and He loves the world, I am a bit troubled at times when I hear the way people or followers of Jesus talk about other people who are outside of, if you will, salvation or Christianity. Does that ever trouble you? Does it ever bother you the, 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 the harshness, the edge, the sense of hostility at times? This seems to be... I, I don't know about you. I mean, maybe you don't get on Facebook, which I, probably is a good idea. <laughs> you know, I get on Facebook, I get mad, and then I just get away from it. <laughs> you know? But, but some of the statements, some of the things, some of the way that people are discussing other matters, 
Folks, I want to tell you, this is the, the great truth of the New Testament, that God loves the world. Everybody in it. Everybody in it. Carl Medeiros, a guy that I know that I met at the prayer breakfast, and Ted Decker, went around the Middle East some years ago and wrote a book called Tea with Hezbollah. Hezbollah, you know, is the, the radical, it's a political party and it's a radical group and there are just all kinds of levels of it. And they met with the leaders throughout the, country, throughout the Middle East of Hezbollah and other radical groups. And they, every one of them asked these people, what is the most famous teaching of Jesus? They, they just asked this question. Said, okay, so tell us. And they said, every one of these guys, Many of them were Muslims, some were Jewish rabbis, others. The most famous teaching was this, love your enemies. Every one of them. That the most foundational, fundamental, radical teaching of Jesus was to love your enemies. And then they asked them, well, how's that going for you? <laughs> How are you doing with that? Well, it's too impractical. You know, okay. I don't know, but I will tell you this. I hear a lot more nowadays that doesn't sound like loving our enemies. It sounds more like defeating them. Defeating them. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. I, I think you have to be convinced that the nature of God is really love. And that any of our understanding of Him and relationship with Him has to be understood like that. What about this? Remember Abraham Lincoln famously said this. Remember how Lincoln said you should destroy your enemy? Y'all remember this statement? Lincoln said, the way to destroy your enemy, make him your friend. Make him your friend. That's the way you destroy an enemy. Not by you know, rolling them over or working them over or knocking them out of the game. But if you will, be willing to love them. Now, listen, I, I'm not stupid. I mean, I may look it, but <laughs> this is not simple religion here. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, wasn't talking about just seven steps to religious life. He'd said to him earlier, you got to be born again. I mean, this is, a, this is a radical thing. This idea of loving your enemies isn't something you just do by turning up all the willpower you got, saying, I'm going to love you if it kills me. And it probably will. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be loving if it kills me. The, the idea here of Jesus is this notion to, to, to Nicodemus, is to love the world. Do you know in Jewish rab, rab, rabbinical teaching, there is no teaching you can find. I've looked, others have said this. Do you know in Jewish writings, there is no concept that God loves the world? Do you know that? Who does He love? The Jews. Only. The Jews. Only. There's no evidence that any of them ever wrote or any of them ever taught that God loved the world. John Wesley, another example here. John Wesley, maybe you know a little bit about him. Um, his brother wrote about 6,000 songs, Charles. And John Wesley taught, again, that God's fundamental nature is love. And he, he made this observation that he said that one of the reasons he strongly resisted what he called high Calvinism or the idea that God elected some people for salvation and He elected some for damnation, which is the inference. If you elect some for salvation, then you also elect some to damnation. Wesley always commented that his struggle with that 
as he read the Scriptures was that he believed that it fundamentally adjusted the nature of God away from loving the world to just loving a few. From loving the world to loving a few. That's what his basic contest was, uh, contesting of it was. He said, I, just, I can't read the Scriptures and believe as I read them that God only loves a few and is willing to damn the rest to an eternal punishment. You know, he, he said, look, he, he believed in God's sovereignty. He believed in all these kind of matters. But the, but the notion that God did not genuinely love everyone, if you will, said, I can't, I can't go there. Because it impinges on the nature of God. So what about this idea here? <clears throat> what if this week we really believe that God loves everyone? Aren't you glad He loved His enemies when you and I were His enemies? Go back and read Romans 5, 8 to 14 uh, this week. <clears throat> Go back and read Romans 5, 8 to 14 this week where it says, for when, we, uh, for when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies. How could this be? Uh, how, how could this be his? How could we, Scar? Sorry, be his representatives this week to show love to others? You know, I got a neighbor that has some loud music every once in a while, and I wanted to go cut the electrical lines. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> probably not the loving thing to do. You know, but 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 you have to ask yourself. You know, and, and it's not Betty. <laughs> she lives down. And it's yeah. Uh, the, the 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 idea of what would it look like for us this week? If we demonstrated God's love to the world. You know, next week, I, I'm already loaded up for this. I wanted to teach it this week, but I just had to get this out. About the woman at the well. The woman at the well. How Jesus shows incredible love to her. Can, you know, can I tell you how we might start loving our enemies? Just, here's just a suggestion. And that, that may be too strong of a word. Maybe, maybe you'd say, well, Cliff, the people next door to me are my enemies. They're just my neighbors. Drive me nuts. <clears throat> You know, maybe that's too strong a word, but, but can I tell you, one of the ways that you might and I might learn to love our enemies, just, just think about this. Let them tell you their story. Let, let them tell you their story. Next week is an illustration I want to use out of La Miserable, Fantine, the lady, one of the central characters in that story. You know, when you, when you finally hear a person's story, a lot of things start adding up. You know, I was, I was raised in a home where my dad was never there. I was, I was raised in a home where <clears throat> there was a lot of abuse and alcohol. Oh. Or, or I was raised in a home <clears throat> where, where, we, where we were just considered trash. You know, one of the ways to love our enemies sometimes is to quit looking at their behavior and start listening to their story. What happened? How did this occur to you? And, and I've discovered over some time that loving our enemies begins by letting them tell us their story. Tell me your story. Without judgment, without trying to correct it. This week, somebody you're having trouble with at work, somebody you're having trouble with in a relationship, they may not have risen to the level of enemy, but you're, you're having trouble with them. You're, you're struggling with them. If God loves the world, love the world by listening to them. Love the world, if you will. Now, third thing. <clears throat> An understanding of what God asks of us in this conversation. In this conversation, Jesus makes this statement, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I know that's a big idea. I've just got, I don't have, you know, if I, if I, ex if I work through every word of this, we'll be here next year. 
that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Now, it's interesting here what God asks of us. It's interesting. Uh, sometimes at the school, uh, I get a phone call from a pastor or a church around the country, and they'll uh, ask me, uh, do, do we have any students at the university who uh, would uh, be uh, candidates for a youth pastor or for a uh, pastor? And I'd say, well, you know, we got a few, a couple. Um, and they'd say, well, uh, can you tell me? And I'd say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, I'd, first of all, if you're going to talk to one of my students, um, I'd like to have you send me a job description. And I'm not kidding you. This is the response I get a lot of times. Huh? <laughs> I, I say, a, a job description. You know, I'd like to know what you expect of this student. I had one guy get so upset with me. He said, well, aren't you teaching those guys up there what to do? <laughs> and then I said, And I said, you bet, cowboy. <laughs> I know what they ought to do, but I'm not sure if you know what they ought to do. Like a week later, I get a hand-scribbled job description in pencil from this guy. And I said to all of my students, do not go to this church. <laughs> right? Because what I've got here are the expectations of one guy who thinks he's the church boss. And if whoever goes there doesn't play ball the way he says, they're in trouble. That's in any job. We, we would like to know what the expectations are. What, what, what do they expect in this job? Do they expect 90 hours a week or 40 hours a week or, or what? I mean, I, it's just normal for us. What does God expect? Here it says, belief or faith. Now, I talked about this last week, and I, I told Becky, I don't want to belabor this. She's my, my uh, co-worker here. But what it says here, that he who believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. My, my experience as a teacher, and I, I realize I'm talking with college, and you're not college students, but my experience with college students is, and often in other areas of training, that there are lots of mixed up and confused ideas about what faith is. In fact, I think I said last week, uh, I think that there are groups of people that are telling us that we need to have faith in faith. It really boils down to that. It's a feeling like that. And, and, and I think over the years, 23 years of teaching, I can just tell you this, that, that, that there are these... Serious misunderstandings about it. I'm going to go real quick through three, four of them real quick, okay? They're on your handout. I've got a video. I don't know if I have time for it. I can show it later. <clears throat> but but I, it's a great video that, that demonstrates this. But there really are, what God asks of us is faith. And there are four features of a faith. I, I told Becky this day, and I, and I talked to the elders of the night, some about this, that, you know, I'm not really that smart, but I'm a tactician. And if somebody says to me, you got to have faith in God, and I say, what does that look like? How do I do that? What does that mean? And I've tried to kind of scour the New Testament and the Old Testament with what would be the features that are a biblical faith. Okay, number one. 
It's the correct object. The correct object. Now, you'll notice this in the New Testament, especially the epistles. I'll just say this. That, that whenever the word belief, which is a, a, a noun, you'll, you'll see the word believe. Belief is a noun or, or faith is a noun. And, and trust or believing is the verb. It's the same word, same word just put in a verbal form. That it is always the idea when faith is an action or faith is believing, it's always you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe on Him. These prepositions suggest that faith always has an object. And last week I said that object is always outside of oneself. Like the, the serpent raised in the desert, like Jesus said there in 3.15, as the serpent was raised up and they looked on it and they had faith, they were, made, they were saved. The, the question that has to be answered for all of us, is not all faith is the same. It, it, it's determined by, or, or dictated by, if you will, by its object. What is it I'm trusting in? Now, I've done this before, but let me just don't answer this out loud. I was trained in evangelism explosion. Some of you were too, and here I know. We, we, we used to ask people, you know, questions like if you were to die tonight, you know you'd go to heaven. And, and you know, kind of intrusive and... We try to be a little cooler with it than that, you know. Saying, uh, you know, I noticed uh, your dandelions are dying in your yard. Really? Yeah, well. Hey, you know, if you were to die. You know, <laughs> you, know you just try to be cool. You, you just, you know, you got to be cool if you're going to do that. But we would ask people, they'd were to die tonight, and you know they'd go to heaven. And then if somebody said, yes, I, I would go to heaven, you know, our natural tendency would go, woo hallelujah, see, you got to go. Because <laughs> we're already nervous for being this intrusive. But there was always a second question that we asked. Great. That's wonderful. But let me ask you this. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before St. If he's there. I mean, I don't know if he's there. St. Peter's there. He would ask you this question. Why should I let you into heaven? The next thing that comes out of their mouth is the object of their faith. I was trained. If I heard baptism, tried to live a good life, was tried to be moral, kept the Ten Commandments, went to church. Here's a hot prospect now. Because the object of their faith is not the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I was trained, and I, and I, and I tell my students this, don't answer this out loud, but when you answer that question, I promise you, you just heard the real... Listen now, listen. Because when I was trained, I, it's, it, it troubled me a bit. Because I'd been to college and I'd been... But I, I remember at one point when I answered that question, after being a follower of Jesus for a while, was basically, I've been trying to follow you, Jesus. That's a wrong answer. Faith is another object. And I think there are a lot of us who are religious and who've gone to church that have been around this thing enough that when we really answer that question, if we'd answer it honestly, it's something other than, I'm depending on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you heard. But faith that Jesus is talking about has to have the right object. Or all bets are off. It isn't faith in faith. It isn't faith has some mysterious power by itself. It must have the correct object. And my fear is, at times with my students, they've got everything else 
other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other, every other thing is sinking sand. Now that's probably a relief to some of us, and it could be a disturbance to some of us. Because we're living with this notion that I'm trying hard, I've tried to live right, I've tried to be right, I've gone to church, I've read my Bible, I've practiced all these things instead of saying, I have only one hope in the object of Jesus Christ. Number two, <clears throat> I'm not gonna, it's, it's often contrary to feelings. Most often your faith is contrary to feelings. I mean, really, I'm, I'm serious. I, mean, I told you like... The, the word, and you can go listen last week's about flying a plane upside down and how pilots get all goofed up with their feelings. But I, I find people all the time that have associated faith with feelings. And it, and, it, and it has nothing to do with it. It could, but that's not where it starts. I, I, I've, just, I've just watched this over the years that, that we think our feelings are what make us believing. I have to believe against my feelings. I, listen, I, I don't hardly believe anything that goes to this brain. Really, my first reaction is doubt it. <laughs> doubt it first. Doubt it first because who knows who this is? You know, feel like, you know, Bill Cosby, Noah. Who, who is it really, you know? But it's contrary to feeling. Here's a verse you can put in there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 7, where Paul says this, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Now, if we got the object right, and we know we're trusting in Jesus, not our feelings, that's it. Third. <clears throat> oh, that, that verse is on there. <clears throat> it acts upon what is believed. This is the thing my students tell me every year. And I just got through reading, <clears throat> grading a bunch of papers, and <clears throat> maybe that's why it's so hot on my radar. But they tell me I never knew that if I believed in Jesus, it meant I would obey Him. And I'm, I mean, I'm just being serious as a heart attack. I, I, I'm reading this to Becky. I mean, not the names of the student. I'm just listen to this. And I'm thinking, what, what have we been telling people? It, it, it acts in James 2, 14, 19 to 20. There, there's this idea that there's a faith that believes, but it doesn't act. That, that my faith must, if you will, cause me to act or respond. If I say, I believe you that you're going to take me to lunch today. If I meet you in the atrium, I, what am I going to do? Hello? <clears throat> I'm going to meet you in the atrium if I believe that, right? So I'm going to act. This is fascinating to me that somehow we've separated faith from action. Faith from, from doing, which the Bible never does. The, the, the Bible never does that. <clears throat> then finally, let me give you the fourth one. This is a great one. <clears throat> it's found in Galatians chapter 5, 2-6. to six. This was one of... Wesley's favorite statements when he said, or he's quoting Paul, he said that, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. And the Jewish thinking, no uncircumcised person could go to hell. You, it, it, you could not go to hell if you'd been circumcised. Period. Go read the rabbis. Couldn't go. Impossible. Could not happen. Paul is saying, that doesn't matter. What matters is this. Listen to this. Faith working through love. Listen to that now. What matters is faith 
working through love. Now, we're coming back to this. John Wesley made this observation, and I, and I think he's accurate. He believed that in the reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, some of these other guys, as wonderful as it was to recover the understanding that one is made right with God by faith. Wesley believed that. He's right in line with the reformers. But he said this. They overdid it. In this regard. That faith began to supplant love. Faith began to supplant or put love in a secondary place. You ever met people like this? They believe, they know, they understand, they can quote, and they're meaner than a rattlesnake. You ever met that? I've been that. I told you before, when I was in college, when I got my first year of Greek under my belt, I went to Christian bookstores to pick fights. Really, theological fights. I love to hear people say something. Oh, uh, excuse me. My faith made me mean. It made, I'm serious. It, it made me arrogant. It made me mean. It made me want to argue with people. It made me want to, not the loving, wonderful teddy bear I am now. My students would probably object to that thought. Faith working through love. Think about that. Does your faith, does my faith, have as its feature? It's our faith is working, operating through love. That's the kind of faith Jesus is talking about. Not the kind of faith that just accumulates information, can rattle it off and understand it. But faith that's working through love. I'm going to ask you, what about this week? These four features of faith, these four characteristics that we find here. I'll just tell you, you can scour the New Testament. I think this is it. I think these are the features that we can look at. You might want to look at one and say it this way. Look at it this way here on the application this week, if you took one of these features and applied it to a situation you're facing, are, are, are you facing a situation where the object of your faith has got to get recalibrated? To say, it's not in my good works, it's not in my effort, it's not in my feelings, it's in God. Or second of all, the other one, am I in a situation where my feelings are telling me something to do differently than the Word of God does? Then I've got to look to God's Word. That's where my faith is. Is my faith something I've been waiting and waiting and waiting and I just want to act? I've got to act. I've got to do something about it. Or fourth, is my faith something limited, restricted to believing ideas? Or is it a faith that works through love? A faith that works through love. Wesley said he believed that this was one of the things that had to be corrected. And the understanding of people's understanding of faith has not just an intellectual idea but something vigorous and vital and something work. That's what this conversation tells. What does God ask of us? Faith. Belief. But what does that faith look like? I want to suggest to you those four. Those four are the kind of faith that Jesus is referring to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this conversation is so full of truths that we need whether it's our understanding of your very nature, would you this week convince us, 
drive it into our souls that it never has before. That your primitive nature is love. For some of us, Lord, that is going to be a relief to know that you love us when the sun comes up. That you love us when the sun goes down. That you love us when we fall down. That you love us when you pick us up. That, Lord, would you this week help us to love the world because we've been loved. We can't love the world without knowing you love us. And help us this week to live out a faith that's active, vibrant, real, in all of our, the dimensions of our lives. And we pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. See you next week. We're going to chapter 4.